that said, Manny, we get, we got Arthur on the line. What do you want to ask him? Since, you know, you're very experienced yourself, you know, you've done a lot of different things in different states. Um, so like, how do you go about building a team in those different states? And like, how do you know that team is performing to your expectations? In, uh, in Indiana, I had to hire a property management uh, company. I had to shop around and get the best people. And then the, the person who is in charge of my account uh, has to work really, really closely with that person and make sure that all the decisions that she makes on a daily basis is what I would have made if I would have been on the ground. And a lot of times it's a conflict of interest for property management companies because they want to turn over a lot of times because they get paid for every lease that they sign. So it's very important you have a fixed amount from gross uh, that, that you get and you negotiate up front what would be the maintenance cost. And then any major CapEx issues that will come up, at least three bids need to be made. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast with your host, Brian Briscoe. In this podcast, we bring some of the top professionals in the apartment investing field to discuss various aspects of the apartment investing journey with the sole purpose of educating listeners to make wise investment decisions. The Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast is sponsored by Four Oaks Capital, bringing you high yield returns through apartment complex investing. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast. I'm your host, Brian Briscoe with Four Oaks Capital. Uh, very excited for today's show. We've got two amazing people on the line with us that are going to bring a ton of value. We got Arthur Drozd and Manrup Sandu. Arthur, you're up first today. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Appreciate you taking your time. Uh, do us a favor and tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell, tell us a little bit about your background and what got you into investing into apartments. I immigrated from uh, Soviet Union um, when I was 23 years old and um, came to California and uh, got into first uh, a car business. I really wanted to be in commercial real estate um, mm-hmm. right away. I got the license. I got everything going, but uh, I had to take a little break uh, from that um, because of the um, family uh, and then uh, was in the car business for about 15 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was really hard to get in into um, real estate in Bay Area mm-hmm. uh, because of the the entry points were so so yeah. so high. So my idea was to maybe buy one piece of property and start uh, with that. But um, luckily for me, 2008 2009, there was a subprime crisis that I was watching very closely. And um, during that time, I realized that a lot of banks are going to lose a lot of money because mm-hmm. I was going to the auctions and watching prices go down. So I ended up buying several properties in the town called Vallejo as a Bay Area town. And at the time, you could buy them pennies on the dollars from the bank. Mm-hmm. So let's say the, um, the property owner owned half a million dollar. Uh, they overextended themselves on the loan. Yep. It was during subprime crisis, and uh, I would buy it from the banks for $50,000 for the price of uh, wow. permits, basically. So uh, use permits, it would be like 55000 You would buy a whole property with uh, duplex, with the uh, land and everything for like mm-hmm. 50000 60000 70000 So I ended up buying a lot of them, flipping some out of uh, some single families and, and flipping some, but left uh, a multifamily um, properties in the portfolio. It was actually very interesting because at the time Vallejo was going through bankruptcy as a city. 
and uh, they had very few policemen on the streets and very few firefighters and there was a lot of services cut off and people were afraid buying in Vallejo. So um, it was perfect time uh, to buy, but uh, it was kind of scary. But um, um, then I thought, I bought it for all the wrong reasons. I thought there was going to be a huge inflation mm -hmm. because uh, at the time, um, Congress voted for a 760 billion, I believe, in, in bailout yeah. at the time. And I thought- Which this is at the time seemed huge, but now looking back at it- whew. Yes, exactly. At the time, it was like, it's an enormous amount of money. And my gut feeling was because I lived through a, mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> inflation yeah. uh, in Soviet Union. So hyperinflation. And that was my biggest fear because I, I've seen it happen in a matter of months when uh, a Russian ruble will yeah. go from from uh, 10 rubles to a dollar to 30 and then to 50 and then to 150 and how it devastated the whole economy and, and made yeah. a lot of people who worked all their lives, all their savings disappear in one day. So no. that was my biggest fear. So my fear was that, 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 that the only way to protect your money is to invest in, in real estate. That's the only way I could understand because it's, re it's something real that produces income. So and that, for those reasons, I would, Sorry, sorry about that. Yeah. A political cartoon several years ago um, during that hyperinflation period in Soviet Union, where a little old lady has a wheelbarrow full of dollar, full of bills, and somebody comes up to her, dumps the cash, and takes the wheelbarrow because it was worth more. But that's yeah. uh, anyway, that, that was something that was from that, that Soviet era hyperinflation time frame. Yeah, exactly. So that was my biggest fear at the time. But it turned out to be not the case. It turned out that 760 billion, 760 billion dollars was not enough as a bailout. But um, and the technology um, that we have uh, that produces a, a much better productivity for everybody kind of minimized uh, all the inflation over the years. Mm -hmm. So I didn't take that to account, <clears throat> and. Um, what ended up happening is uh, Web 2.0 happened in about 2012. Facebook went public and all the other technology uh, companies in the area went public. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people came into the, into the country from all over the place uh, to run Web 2.0. In engineers, programmers, and a lot of people in high tech. And it lifted all the, all the uh, uh, rental prices in the city so high that they start pushing that further away from San Francisco, first to Vallejo and Oakland, then further away. Yeah. So it lifted all the prices on the properties that I bought for pennies on the dollar into astronomical level. So, <clears throat> sorry. Yep. So my idea was, you know, what would be next? So I went to next town that I thought would explode. And that was Sacramento. Mm -hmm. And that happened probably a few months later. I bought three buildings there and then I couldn't buy there anymore. Next was what's what's going to be a next place that's going to catch on fire. And that's logically was Nevada. So I went to Las Vegas, bought four properties there, you know, four multifamily properties there. Mm -hmm. A year later, that market exploded. So for me, that was logically what's next. So I went to Oklahoma. Oklahoma started catching up on fire really quick yeah. with prices going up. So then I decided what would be the next market. And then after much research for me, it was Indiana. Mm -hmm. I know you guys would want to know why, so we'll yeah. leave that probably for later. Well, let, let's actually talk about it right now. I, I think right now is a great time for, for that question because you, you talk about going to the next hot markets, and it sounded like, I mean, so far you've been successful at picking a bunch of winners. 
You know, I mean, for the first one was, as you state, for the wrong reasons, you're expecting hyperinflation, but, you know, you got your Googles, you got your Facebooks, you got your Silicon Valley getting blowing up, you know, in in land value and population in 2012 onward. How did you, I mean, what you said, you said logically Las Vegas and Sacramento and Oklahoma were, you expected them to grow. What were the things that you were looking at that led you to believe that these cities would, would end up um, growing like they have? Well, easy. It was easy with Sacramento because Sacramento is a an hour and 45 minute drive from San Francisco. And a lot of people would live somewhere in between and commute or, or, or people who were working class or people who could not afford to live in San Francisco Bay Area, but they have to commute to work. They, would, they were moving uh, closer to where they can afford to live. Right. Sacramento was, was very logical for that. And, and then <clears throat> right around that time, I learned that we have about six to seven million doors shortage of affordable housing in the United States. And looking at the cities where the shortage is the most profound, Sacramento uh, came out on the list as as one of them mm-hmm. um, because uh, building is, is 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 cost prohibitive because just a use permit uh, is about from fifty to fifty thousand dollars per door. Mm-hmm. Housing there. So if you have, if you're buying a, uh, an apartment building at sixty to seventy thousand dollars, eighty thousand dollars per door, to build brand new, just the use permit, just that, just the permits is fifty to fifty-five thousand per door. You buying an affordable housing, and whatever whoever is going to build anything, they cannot build affordable housing. Yeah, it'll never be affordable to begin with. <clears throat> Las Vegas was the next uh, market for. Me. Because it became so unaffordable in Seattle and Los Angeles and San Francisco and moving out, out of out of coastal areas altogether. Even Sacramento became more expensive. <clears throat> so that's why Las Vegas was a bargain. And right now, <clears throat> Las Vegas is on fire still as a rental uh, market yeah. goes. I think last year it was uh, almost 20% uh, increase in rental values. Mm-hmm. So, uh, basically, long story short, you're looking at a lot of the demographic trends. You're looking at where people are moving and the reasons behind it, and just projecting. You know, hey, you know, real estate in California is getting super expensive. Expensive. You know, first San Francisco Bay Area is getting super expensive, and California in general is getting super expensive. It started you- with that. <clears throat> it started with that, but then there's a lot of other factors that yep. kicked in the last two years, mm-hmm. and main, mainly now it's environmental factors. Mm-hmm. As you know, we have a lot of fires in California now. Yep. So now it's called a, a fire season, mm-hmm. right? Like many would tell you uh, uh, that uh, you know you have monsoon, which is a rainy season, right? Yep. And uh, it's a, it's a name for a whole season, right? Yep. So there's a three to four months it rains, right? So now we, it's it's called a, a fire season in California. Yeah. So it's a, it happens every year. So you cannot breathe. Everybody's wearing masks outside. There's a shortage of water. There's a drought that we're going into a third year, and it's a second yeah. drought in the last ten years. So once you start looking at trends, there you know trends are not very good. I mean, we were looking to buy a property in Sonoma, Solano counties, Napa counties, and to build something. You have to dig three times deeper to get to the water because the water bed is now so low. Yeah. So there's a shortage of water. There's a, and, yeah. and plus, plus, plus there are some political problems as well. You know, you have rent control and uh, 
and uh, a lot of other issues uh, not very friendly for uh, running a multifamily business in California. So, but uh, uh, environmentally, I was looking for other states. What would be the other states that would have water? Hey, eh? uh-huh. it would be, and, and then they they will not have fire of uh, uh, forest fires. Yeah, Oklahoma and Indiana uh, were on that list. What the states are that you know now we call them red states, but what are the states that are uh, landlord friendly? Uh-huh. Uh, Oklahoma and Indiana, both of them fit yep. the bill. And then what are the states that have increasing population? Uh, many lives in Indiana. He will tell you probably the uh, mm-hmm. population of Indiana is increasing by 0.4, 0.5% each year now. Yep. There was a period where a population after uh, uh, a lot of um, automotive um, uh, manufacturing left Indiana mm-hmm. at around the Great Recession. And a lot of towns really got crashed, but uh, it, the, the property values reached such a low levels in the, in the last few years that they became a, a bargain again. Mm-hmm. So what kind of like Vallejo was in 2008, 2009, a lot of suburban Indiana properties became really, really, really attractive. Yeah. And uh, so that's why I was looking at states like that, that have demographically increasing now, mm-hmm. the property values are on the increase, they're still very cheap. You still can buy stuff at seven to eight cap, mm-hmm. but it, but if you're looking at a uh, a world of uh, uh, a three degree world now, it's called that, right? When mm-hmm. if the if if the if the weather changes and uh, climate changes and uh, the world is going to start experiencing plus three Celsius temperatures, mm-hmm. what is the market? That's yeah. actually going to perform better, and then we'll have um, uh, less environmental problems. Oklahoma and Indiana was on that list. So that's to, to, to answer your questions about that. Yeah. And there, there's a lot of good reasons. And incidentally, I've, I lived in California for, I think, eight or nine years. And the fire season, yeah, we, we were evacuated from our, our place a couple of times. And you also mentioned water. I, I don't think I've ever paid more for water um, than anywhere else in the world. I mean, my my water bill for a single family home was consistently you know, two to $300 a month. And I think you're right. A lot of people, because of the scarcity of water, um, which leads to the fires, you know, and, and leads to high bills, a lot of people are seeking greener pastures, so to speak. And then um, Indiana, I mean, I, I've been watching trends as well. They have been growing and cities like Chicago and Detroit have both been shrinking. Um, are, are you seeing like a lot of Chicago and Detroit transplants moving into Indiana or, or where do you think a lot of that growth is coming from? The tenants that I do get in Indiana, the mm-hmm. ones that, that applications I do look at, I do have a property management company that takes care of that. But <clears throat> when I'm curious to see where tenants are coming from, uh, it's interesting. Some of them are moving as far as, uh, as Florida. Some of them are moving uh, from Tennessee, from across the border. But it's uh, the reasons behind that is because, again, there's a lot of people are concerned that a coastal property is now becoming a, a, a danger to be in because of a lot of problems that uh, environmentally that, that, that could happen to those coastal areas. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, let, let's shift gears and let's talk a little more specific about one of the properties that you've uh, closed on recently. So um, is, is there one that you especially like that you'd like to share today? Um, well, it's probably, uh, we can talk about, uh, Indiana probably better. Um, 
let's do it. Because uh, many is in Indiana. Uh, the last four deals in Oklahoma I bought were uh, a, a brand new construction. I bought it from developers that they were <laughs> finishing it up because it's a different trend. It's a different type of uh, type of buildings and a different type of uh, assets altogether. But um, um, the ones in Indiana, uh, I mentioned uh, to, to you guys before, there was a tower, 13-story mm-hmm. tower in Anderson. There was a property in Muncie, which is uh, um, 50 townhomes. Mm-hmm. So we can talk about this deal. Um, uh, Muncie is a um, property... As a 50 townhomes building, I believe in 1985, mm-hmm. um, it consists of mainly three bedroom, two bath property uh, built buildings with uh, two car garages. Nice. And the property was uh, mismanaged for many, many years. And uh, a lot of tenants were subprime, as we call them, tenants, and it brought mm-hmm. a lot of problems. And uh, the property was not upgraded for many, many years. And uh, the market rents per unit there should be at around um, $1,100 to maybe $1,150 to $1,200 per per unit uh, for a three-bedroom, two-bath townhomes with two-car garages. But uh, they were, you know, the previous owner was doing all bills paid at $800 a month. Wow. And, and uh, yeah, and utility bills at like uh, between gas and electric is between 400 to 500. Wow. So you can only imagine what the net, yeah. <laughs> net on that was. So, um, so slowly, you know, slowly I'm repositioning that property, getting, uh, um, getting uh, a lot of uh, um, tenants that were not paying um, uh, to get either assistance or to have some payment plans with them. And then, um, a lot of units that become available, we, uh, remodel and, and put them up for, a, um, at the market, uh, rents. Mm-hmm. So, and then once you do that to so the difference, you can, you can see that, you know, if the market rent is 1100, um, so, um, in, and when I bought it, it was, you know, at what 800, they would, mm-hmm. the rents were. So there's a, is about about thirty five to forty percent increase in rents there, right? So yeah. that that could be achieved right away if it's managed right. So um, that's what I'm doing with that property. Now, three bedrooms, two baths. You know, as far as multifamily, that that's that's a larger you know floor plan plus the two car garages. Um, now, I'm just thinking out loud here. I mean, do you get a lot of tenants there that tend to be sticky and tend to stay for longer periods? It seems to be something that would attract the family, you know, a small family and and be more of a long-term rental than, than you know, live there for a year and then move again. Yeah, no, that's the idea. That's the idea to keep it as a, as a long-term, uh, long-term property that, that's, that people stay for much longer. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> when I bought it three months ago, um, it was 100% occupied. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, as I mentioned, uh, the, the previous owner filled it up with a lot of people on all bills paid program just to fill it up. Yeah. And it was not very profitable for, for him. So I guess that's why he decided to sell it. Yeah. Yeah. And incidentally, I mean, when I see something that's 100% occupied, the first thing that goes through my mind is it's probably undervalued as far as the rents go. Because you know, typically, if, if you're at market rents, you're usually right around the market vacancy rate as well. So um Quick clue, you know, everything, any, anytime anything's advertised, it's 100% occupied. I'm thinking, eh, rents are probably low. There's probably a little bit of room for, you know, increased there. But uh, yeah. um, shifting gears one more time, you know, a question I, I like to ask everybody just, just to kind of get a, 
you know, peer into your soul, so to speak. What's your big burning why? Uh, well, you know, money is the tool that uh, they can use to do a lot of things. And it uh, is provides, um, provides you with, uh, with freedoms to do a lot of other things. So um, it provides, uh, for me, it, 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 the big why is um, being free to do other things in my life, uh, the things that I enjoy. And um, sometimes give back. So I have, um, I have a couple of projects in mind that I'm working on. So hopefully they will, you know, yeah. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Like I said, that money's a tool that helps us to do other things and uh, um, lo- love that you're using you know time and money to, to also give back. That's something that's uh, been very important for me. And then last question before we, we introduce Manny, you know, what's next for you? Hmm. I'm, I'm working right now on a, on a project. It's an aggregator of financial credit. It's called a uh, uh, ready land go. What I realized uh, doing, I did seven deals this year um, in, in the space, in the commercial multifamily space. And I realized that the biggest problem is not finding the properties, mm-hmm. it's getting them financed <clears throat> and getting them financed at the right, uh, at the right terms. Mm-hmm. And it takes a lot of time because you send it to a lot of banks, you send your information to a lot of lenders, and sometimes you hear from them, sometimes you don't. Sometimes they come in with one term sheet and then during the deal, they, they come back with a completely different. Yep. I realized, wouldn't that be easier and, and, and take so much less of your time if you send it to one space and mm-hmm. it shops for you and gets you the best deals, you know, and the two or three offers and yeah. it would be the easiest way. So once I realized that I got all the lenders I've been working with over the year, Put them uh, together and get them to agree to uh, to work with me on this. And I came up with a, a Ready Land Go. That's mm-hmm. uh, a one side. It's an aggregator uh, that that's basically puts together people who are trying to finance or refinance their property with the lender and gets the best deal for them. Well, that's awesome. I, I've been able to look over the website. It's a very, very well done website. And, and the, the idea behind it is, is solid, especially for the newer investors. You know, the lending piece, you know, I, I'll, I'll be honest, we, we didn't get the best loan for our first property because, you know, we, we probably didn't know exactly where to go, where to go, you know, where to go and, and what, what factors were important. So, you know, if you're solving, you know, a lot of those problems and, and helping people, giving people one spot or one stop shopping spot for commercial loans, I think that's a, that's a valuable product. The biggest thing about this is that you solve not only that problem. It's a, the, the biggest thing is LTV, as you, as you know, yep. like you could get the same deal done at 65% LTV, or you can get the same deal done at 80% LTV, huh? right? Yeah. So all my deals I did this year, I seven deals. I did this year and they're all at 80% LTV. So that means it allowed me to do more deals. Mm -hmm. If I would have done deals at 65 or 70, I would have done maybe one third less of deals. Yeah. So, and that's a big, and that's a big reason why I thought, you know, that's that, that would be very important for people to get into their site and, and get the best terms so they can get the, 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 the highest LTV, the lowest interest rates and, you know, and, and, and a lowest upfront points. Yeah, I think where we're at today, I mean, your, your lending has to be spot on and having better terms on a loan 
can take a mediocre deal and turn it into a good deal, you know? So um, we'll be closing on one. Um, let's see, today's Monday. We'll be closing on one on Thursday where we got 80% LTV. Actually, 80% LTC is what we got on this particular product. At 70%, it wasn't a good deal. Yep. You know? So at, at 75%, it was mediocre. At 80%, it was screaming, you know? So um, yeah, I think that's that's very valuable as well. So, um, and for, for anybody listening, if you're interested, we'll have a link to it in the show notes, readylendgo.com, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, if you're interested in that, check it out. Um, that said, we, we have Manny, who's been waiting patiently on the, the line with us now. So, um, Manny, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Brian. Very excited. All yeah, right. And you are in Indiana, correct? Where at? Yes. Indianapolis, just right in the, right in the Midwest, right there. Right, right in the heart of uh, the heart of the state, right. So yep. Crossroads America. Uh, Crossroads of America is that what it's yeah. called? I, I've only driven yeah. So nice, Crossroads of America. Well, welcome to the show today, and do us do us a favor and tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Yeah. So my name is Manrup, but I like to go by Manny. Um, so I'm, I had uh, finished up my time at IU, Indiana University. I studied finance there. Um, and so, like, how further like, back do you want me to go? You know, really, as, as much as you're comfortable. I mean, just okay. enough to give us good good background sure. of who you are, where you're from. And, um, sure. you know, that way, if people are interested, they, they, they hear something that resonates with you, they can, they can reach out. For sure. Yeah. So I guess just kind of talk about a little bit like, my starting time in college and now like wanting to do real estate. Um, when I originally started in college, I wanted to become a banker, like investment banking. I wanted to go into that. A lot of my friends, they, they did that type of field, either banking or consulting. That's where they said there were the big bucks were at. Um, and so, you know, I studied finance. That was my main route. I wanted to go, but those roles are not easy. You know, you minimum, you have to talk with 50 people. And these aren't even at the same places. Like I had an opportunity, I'll get into this further, um, but like to get into banking, you got to talk with like an associate. First, you have to talk with an analyst at like, a, you know, one place like in Chicago. And then you'll have, he'll connect you if he likes what you're saying and he likes you, he'll connect you with an associate who's like in a different location. So it's a lot of back and forth and just like people pleasing in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, talking with 50 people just to even be considered for an opportunity in banking that, you know, that to me, um, it wasn't exactly what I wanted to do is just like pleasing others. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I did have an opportunity. And so I think in summer 2019, I did do a investment banking internship with RBC in Chicago. Yeah. Um, and that internship, it was good, mm-hmm. but it wasn't something I want to do long-term. You know, they, they do say like, you know, a lot of people they'll make, you know, 80 to 85 right out of college if you get into banking. But when you're working like 80 hours a week, if not more, you know, that, that's mental strain right there. Yeah. Um, you know, and I mean, making, making a good salary is great, but at the same time, if you're putting 80, 85 hours per week in, I mean, the salary all of a sudden doesn't seem to be the most important thing anymore. Sure. Especially like during that summer, I very little time. I didn't get to speak with my parents very much. I was just always in the office, just doing modeling, making PowerPoints for the presentations, all those type of things. And so um, I did that and that was my sophomore year. And then towards my junior year, <clears throat> I, um, I did a real estate class because it was part of my finance curriculum. You had to take some sort of elective. So I did a, a real estate class. I really liked it. I was like, you know, you can 
there are so many different ways you can save money on taxes, depreciation, have people pay you while you're sleeping type of thing. I was like, you know, banking can't compete with this, you know? And so, um, but you know, that was something very appealing to me. So I did some classes, participated in clubs, and then I did an internship um, for uh, a, a private institution here in Indiana um, in their lending department. And so from there, I really have liked it. And so even now I'm in a valuation role for a very, very good uh, real estate firm. So mm-hmm. it's it's definitely good, but, you know, better than working um, for someone, it's, it's better to also, you know, have your own thing going too. So, yeah, um, yeah. I, I like, especially like that you you realize that early on, you know, so I think when, when I was your age, I was still on the, you know, find a good job and, and work for somebody else. And it, it he's took way ahead of us. He's way oh, ahead God. of us. Holy you are God. like, you are like 20 years ahead of us. Yeah. You're in the right time in the right place. Yeah. So good, good for you for, for at least recognizing that, you know, I, I kind of thought that the path to my success would be finding that $80,000 a year job, you know, but uh, um, so let's, let's talk about your big burning why, and then, you know, I'll hand you the microphone and let you get on with the questions, but what, what is your big burning why? It just my main big burning why is just, you know, I don't want to work my whole life. You know, even the role I'm in now, very, you know, unfiltered response. It's fine. It's definitely a learning experience, but it's not something, you know, I plan on doing long term, you know, like it's a bit off topic. But like it's sunny outside, similar to, you know, what Mr. Draws was saying, you know, having the um, the freedom to do whatever you want, you know, like. Yeah. It's sunny outside. And rather than be working at a desk, I do want to, like, go outside or I do want to, you know, spend time with my, my parents and, you know, friends and family. And so um, that, and then on top of just, you know, real estate in itself is something I really, I enjoy a lot more. Um, It's definitely a lot more sustainable, especially, you know, as COVID has shown. So sustainability and freedom are my two main big groups. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's huge. And once again, you know, good, good on you for recognizing that early on in your life. So you don't have to, you know, trudge through, um, you know, the regular, grind that everybody else does for, for a long time. So um, that said, Manny, we get, we got Arthur on the line. What do you want to ask him? Sure. Yeah. So um, I really enjoyed hearing, now hearing about his background, especially, you know, here in the home state too. Um, I guess one of my questions, just as mentioned, like, so you regarding like with brokers. So how do you go about, you know, picking one specific broker that can work based on your needs and like at all, like the clients that probably want to work with them, how does he pick you like I got a deal here. I want to send it to him first. How do you go? Um, <clears throat> well, in my particular situation, I was very lucky uh, uh, when I my first deal I did in Indiana. I did with um, Aaron Kuroiva, a broker from uh, Marcus and Millichap, um, and he's a leader of the group there. Um, he had the tower and Anderson under contract somewhere when I called and I said, uh, when, if, if, if it does happen to fall out of escrow, uh, could you please call me back? And he did when it did fall out of escrow. Mm-hmm. And so we worked diligently about six months together and I get to know him really well. And he got to know me really well. We overcame a lot of obstacles to get that deal done. Um, and, uh, that's how, uh, that's how, uh, he learned that who I am and, uh, a few lunches and dinners later <clears throat> and a lot of phone calls later, um, we, uh, we knew that, uh, it's probably going to be a good relationship. So that's how it started. And so on the next deal, when he had it, he, uh, he, uh, he called me and said, I have another deal for you. 
and then another deal. So I ended up buying three buildings from him in, in, in suburb Indianapolis in uh, this year alone. And I, I was looking at the market, uh, and I really like Indiana uh, for um, for all those reasons that I mentioned before. But um, the brokers, you, you, you pick one and then you make a relationship because there's not only these people are going to be selling those properties for you later. They will know you and your properties and how they're performing, where they are, what you did with them, what was the capex, what kind of tenants base you have there. They'll know everything about it. And during the time of your ownership, they would know, is it a good time for you to reposition yourself and maybe sell it or refinance it? and uh, into a larger property so and you would be the first one they will call and say hey uh, you know what um i have somebody who wants to buy your size of the property i don't know, whatever it is 20 30 unit building and uh, would you be interested in selling it and then you know you I'll, I'll, that, that will give you time to work it on those time frames and not to rush into a 1031 exchange it'll give you time to look for something else and maybe that same broker will find your replacement deal that for your 1031 exchange so you can grow into so my advice to you is uh, just nurture relationships take people to lunch you know on a bike ride and just uh, have a lot of talks with a lot of people uh, that that have a lot of deals going through through their desk and i think uh, the marcus and miller chap in uh, in uh, indianapolis is the best place to start they're the biggest i think they they grew their office though to, to the largest office i think in indiana yeah, I'll, I'll say something similar. I mean, my the first property that I got under contract, I was banging my head against the wall with you know phone calls and emails, and it wasn't until you know our my my chosen market was uh, South Carolina, and I was living in you know the D.C. area. It wasn't until I got into my car, drove eight hours down the road, and met with brokers that I started getting traction. You know, and it was sitting across the table from them, and you know over a cup of coffee or, or you know beverage of choice and um, you know walking properties with the brokers I think I think that is really what made a big difference for me was just that that personal face-to-face meeting um, as opposed to being you know a random guy on you know an email or or a cell or calling on cell phone many I have a question for you that what uh, what uh, size of a building you want to start with Ideally, that's actually a bit of a funny question for me because um, I haven't actually worked with a broker yet, but since I'm like so familiar with Indiana as a whole, I've been here for over 10 years. Um, I just know this specific like area that I've been really looking at. So it's actually a self-storage opportunity. Mm-hmm. So I'm really like right now, I don't have like much of a criteria. Like I only want this because you know I don't have anything going yet, uh, but it's like a self-storage. And ideally, you know, Either like the hundred plus units are where I've like, it's a lot more sustainable. You know, if you lose one tenant, you still have 99 plus more, but like lose one tenant, like, you know, triplex, 66% of occupancy. And so just a lot more sustainable. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Since, you know, you're very experienced yourself, you know, you've done a lot of different things in different States. Um, So like, how do you go about building a team in those different States? And like, how do you know that team is performing to your expectations? Huh. Uh, you're absolutely right. Team is is the most important in that location. So uh, I had to fire a couple of managers this year in those uh, in those cities, and um, 
Um, I prefer to have a property managers that I trained and they work specifically for me and they just do what uh, what I need them to do. But in particular case for um, Indiana, I had to fire my first manager. She she was not performing, so I had to let her go. Um, but um, in uh, in Indiana, I had to hire a property management uh, company. I had to shop around and get the best people. And then uh, the, the person who is in charge of my account uh, has to work really, really closely with that person and make sure that all the decisions that she makes on a daily basis is what I would have made if I would have been an owner uh, uh, on, the, on the ground. So because property management company, that's the only property management company I have. Everybody else, Everywhere else I have a team of people uh, as a property manager and maintenance person and an eviction people. So it's, it's usually work in the team, but they strictly work down to work for me. But uh, a property management uh, company in Indiana, um, I have... Is, is trained to to work around my schedule on this. So I, it's very important that, that they need to know that if the expenditure is over $300, they need to call you. Uh, it's very important that they know if there's a big, big problem uh, that they need to um, fix, they need to call and make at least three bids on it. If it's a collapsed sewer line or it's a leaky roof or is you know the elevator that, that that is not working whichever problem it is at least three bids because the property management companies have a tendency to just get a first you know first bid they get along so they can so they can move on uh so they don't spend too much time in it because it's not their money um and a lot of times it's a conflict of interest for property management companies because they want to turn over a lot of times because they get paid for every lease that they sign so it's very important you have a fixed amount that that uh from uh, from gross uh that that you get you know i the company that i found is at five percent mm-hmm. and uh uh, you negotiate up front what would be the maintenance costs uh, if if they need to do per hour and that and it needs to be reasonable like the contract I have is at forty dollars an hour um, so it has to be it has to be discussed up front and then any major capex issues that will come up at least three bids need to be made so anything on any expenditures over three hundred dollars they need to contact you so those are the the the, the parameters that I set up for management company. Um, and it's so far has been working for me. Yeah. Yeah. When, when you asked that question, as Arthur was talking, the, the words hire slow fire fast kind of came to mind. And we've had, um, we've had a lot of struggles getting property management companies to try to manage the properties, you know, like we want them managed. And I, I think the default for a lot of property managers is, um, and I, I think this, this is, not just in, in the property management industry, but people try to do um, as little as possible, you know, and and spread themselves thin. They they get spread really thin. So what we were finding is, is kind of like Arthur was mentioning is they had a tendency to do the easiest thing and try to call it done. You know, get get as many things checked off as possible. But you know, you're going back to the higher slow fire fast. You know, spend a lot of time with people before you bring them on. You know, and then. Um, in, in an industry like this, you know, if, if the NOI, if occupancy starts diving, if, if the NOI starts diving, you know, that's where the fire fast comes in, where you've got to, you've got to cut your losses before they become bigger. My two cents anyway. 
That's good. That's good to send him. Yeah, I, I usually give them a try for about a month or two. And if I don't see that they take my advice or my guidance um, into account, then there's a change. We yeah. need to change really fast. Yes. And that's that's actually one thing we, we saw is, you know, we had property managers that were very set in their ways and didn't want to change to adapt to what we were doing. That, that's an immediate sign up front. You know, if they're not going to execute your business plan, they're not a good fit. Yeah. So. Right. Sure. Yeah. So I guess one of my questions, um, that's more of a rookie type of question. Since I've mentioned like the self storage, you know, that's still something I've been looking at. I haven't really actually gotten anything going with that. I've called the guy up. He hasn't really, you know, responded too well. So um, I guess one question is, have you had to work on off market deals before as yours just been like, you know, someone that, can get you connected with the person. I'm not very familiar with the um, uh, self-storage market and the whole sector because I've been concentrating on apartments and it's been working really well for me. I know the economics of of that business much, much better than I would know uh, self-storage. But um, uh, in... In the market of uh, apartment buildings, it's it's very hard to find anything off mm-hmm. off market. But again, if you have a broker and you have a relationship, and they have an off market deal uh, that they will drive that to you before they put it on the market, because as you know, they will earn double commission. So mm-hmm. there's a there's a self interest there. So um, it's again, it, it, it's it's better to have uh, relationships with uh, with brokers. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. The relationship business, and I mean, you're, you're. I don't think you're going to get a lot of these off market deals if you don't have that relationship. You know, if when what you, I think the gold standard is when when a broker gets something across his desk, they think of your name first. But if you got to think of what 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 is it going to take to get there. You know, they they want. Uh, Arthur mentioned the self interest piece. You know, what does a broker want? They want to sell for a highest price as possible in the shortest amount of time. All right. So, from a broker's self interest, if they know somebody who's chomping at the bit, ready and able to buy, that's the person they're going to call first. You know, so you need to be the person who is you know ready and able to buy in their mind for them to call you with that off market deal. So I guess one more question that I have. Uh, So I guess, you know, what would you, you know, I'm, you know, given my age and experience, what would you recommend would be like good steps to be taken? Because that's just what I've been doing like on my own, but I don't have like, you know, set way to go. So like, what would you recommend? Um, If I were you, which is hard to be because (laughs) you are, you are who you are and I, I, I am who I am, but if I were you, um, looking back probably at myself uh, 25 years ago, I would start small and fast, but small. And I'll start with, with smaller properties. I'll start with maybe even single family homes that you can repair and rent or sell yourself. You don't need brokers for that. You can buy them, especially in Indiana. You can, uh, especially, you can look, you can buy. Uh, homes for forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars in the suburbs of Indiana, and if you have uh, yourself and a couple of friends, or maybe a family that can help you out, um, fix them up, 
you can rent them on Airbnb. Mm-hmm. Um, every time I go to uh, to Indianapolis and I need to go and stay in in, in Anderson or Muncie, there is nothing on Airbnb available. Mm-hmm. There are two or three listings and they're booked usually. So there's a huge market for that right now. You can start there. You can buy a very cheaply uh, a, a house or a, a duplex or a triplex and fix it up yourself and then rent it on Airbnb and and have a fantastic cash flow. And you can learn a lot of how to operate a rental business from that. And then you can build a lot of cash uh, into that. You can I know people in, in Oklahoma City that have five, six, seven Airbnb homes that they that they rent and, and they made a lot of, of their startup capital from this Airbnb funds. Yeah. Every weekend it's booked. So, and you would never think like, you know, seriously, in, in, there's nobody in a suburb of Indianapolis have, have uh, uh, Airbnbs. No, people don't do that. For the same reason, they, 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 there's no Uber rides there. You know, I, I couldn't get an Uber ride or Uber Eats to deliver me food in Anderson. So, I mean, it's, it's insane, but it is what it is. You look for markets like that and those are the opportunities. So if I were you... Uh, I would look in your particular market of what's the what's those opportunities are because self storage a lot of people hunting right now for self storage at 100 units plus because it's a kind of a set business and you if even if you buy something from somebody you're going to buy something um, that is going to be a four to five cap deal it's going to be really really hard to make serious money on that serious cash flow on that. So I would start somewhere where you can have much better cash flow, and that's probably residential, mm-hmm. and then rentals, and then grow into maybe five to ten units, and then ten to twenty units rentals, and then grow from there. At the speed uh, um, that usually it happens, and just watching other people uh, are doing it, that two to three years you have a portfolio of rentals, and then you can go and look at other. Uh, a, a product like uh, self-storage or some other products. But uh, I would start I would start there. I would start in residential. I'll start with markets that, that can really give you really good cash flow, stuff you can do it yourself and, and learn a lot from small pieces of property. So that's my advice. Yeah, I think that's that's really smart. I mean, with your your age, Manny, I, you have time on your side. You know, I think the older you get, the less time is on your side. And, and I think that, the, the tendency is to want to operate faster and faster and faster to get more done, but uh, you've got time on your side. So I, I would say that the two ways I see most people getting in is number one, exactly what Arthur said, you know, start small, start with some single family, start with some, some little stuff and grow your portfolio year over year. And then the second way that I see very commonly happen is, you know, latching on to somebody who's into the hundred plus market because you by yourself, you're, you're not going to be able to get into that hundred plus market without a team. So latch on to somebody and become a team member of somebody who's in that marketplace that you want to get to. I think both of them are, are very valid ways of doing it. Just depends on which way you want, you want to, which way you choose to get there. But uh, one more thing I want to add, um, if you really want to learn um, the business Mm-hmm. I think right now Marcus and Melichop is hiring. I'm sorry to make an advertising. No, no, it's fine. But you can but you can go into the office and they like to see bright people like you and you can learn the ropes yeah. really fast. And it's not only not only in Indianapolis, I think a lot of firms are hiring right now. So you can start there 
you yeah. can work you can just uh, do basic stuff and watch what they do and how they do it and get to know clients and get to know how the business is run fairly quick and then start investing into uh, the deals and uh, you will learn your market much faster that way. So I, I know a lot of firms are hiring right now around the country in commercial yeah. real estate. It's a good point. Learn, learn as you earn, so to speak. Yeah, you, yeah you'll get paid to learn. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we, we are out of time. So thank you so, so much to both of you for, for spending some time with us today. Uh, one question for each of you before we, we end this. And uh, Arthur, you're going first. Uh, how can listeners learn more about you? I'm on LinkedIn. That's the only um, social media site that I'm on. Um, mm-hmm. So everything else, I think, is a waste of time. <laughs> so, <laughs> so to me, LinkedIn is the best connection. Uh, so connect to me on LinkedIn and I can answer any questions, help anybody uh, who has any questions or uh, uh, you can send me a request on uh, Radio Land Go and uh, um, my team will respond to that as well. All right. Sounds good. So LinkedIn or Ready, Lend, Go. Check it out if you want to contact them. And, and Manrup, same question for you. How can people get in touch with you? For sure. Yeah. So I've been using LinkedIn a lot. Um, you know, I, that's how I actually found out about your podcast. Um, that's how I got connected with people like Hirsch and Nick, yep. Revu. And so, you know, a lot of really smart people like that just through LinkedIn. So uh, mainly just LinkedIn. And trying right. a little bit like if um, familiar with like Twitter, but mainly just LinkedIn. All right. And we'll put a, we'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes as well. So um, for those listening, if, if anything that, that they've said has resonated with you, definitely reach out to them. And, you know, LinkedIn is a great place to, to connect with other people who are, who are like-minded. So, um, and there, there I go giving a LinkedIn promo. So, uh, <laughs> all right. So once again, thanks guys for coming on the show and um, we'll talk again soon, hopefully. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast today, brought to you by Four Oaks Capital. If you'd like to know more about how to invest in apartment buildings or want to be a guest in our show, visit our website at fouroakscapital.com slash podcast or email us directly. If you're still listening, you obviously like the show, so pull out your phone, tap subscribe, and leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. And we'll see you again next week.